Welcome to Positively 365, a podcast by Joe Wattis. We wish to entertain, instruct, and motivate. If nothing else, hopefully we can entertain and inspire you to live a more positive life 365 days a year. We hope you enjoy this message. Lost on a rainy night, a nun stumbles across a monastery and asks to spend the night there. Fortunately, she is just in time for dinner. She is treated to the very best fish and chips that she has ever tasted. After the dinner, she went to the kitchen to thank the chefs. She was met by two of the monks. The first one says, Hello, I am Brother Michael. And this is Brother Charles. I'm very pleased to meet you, replies the nun. I just wanted to thank you for the wonderful dinner, she says. The fish and chips were the very best I've ever had. Out of curiosity, who cooked what? Brother Charles replied, Well, I am the fish fryer. She turned to the other brother and says, Then you must be... Yes, you guessed it, he replied. I am the chipmunk. I went to three stores today. The first store was totally out of toilet paper. The second store also had empty toilet paper shelves. I went into the third store totally expecting to see the same thing. Lo and behold, I had gotten to the right store at exactly the right time. The shelves had just been stocked with toilet paper. That stock of fresh paper was quickly being diminished, but not before I was able to obtain a few rolls. As I was in line waiting to check out, I wondered exactly who decided that we should have a run on toilet paper. What does toilet paper have to do with the fear of the coronavirus? How is it that I was forced to share in this cultural phenomenon of stocking up on toilet paper? In today's episode of Positively 365, we will look at this cultural phenomenon of fear and worry over the coronavirus. But first... We have our trivia question for the day. Are you ready for it? Here it is. What is the wettest city in the United States? We will have the answer when we come back. Do you know the answer to today's trivia question? The question was, what is the wettest city in the United States? Hint, it is not in the Pacific Northwest as many people may think. It is not Seattle. No, the wettest city in the United States is Mobile, Alabama. Yes. Mobile, Alabama holds the title for the wettest city in the contiguous United States. 
It gets an average of 67 inches of rain each year over the course of an average of 59 rainy days. The Gulf Coast cities of Pensacola, Florida and New Orleans, Louisiana come in second and third for their annual rainfall. Now you know. In watching news reports about the coronavirus, the news anchor asks what I think is a very annoying question. She asks, just how worried should we be? This is an annoying question to me because worry is so hard to quantify. But it's also annoying because the answer is always, we shouldn't worry at all. Worry is pointless. There is bound to be something better we can do than worry. Yes, we should take precautions and we should be careful, but there's no point to worry. Indeed, psychotherapists might go on to say that if we are eaten up with worry, we should ask ourselves about the worrisome thoughts that we are having. First, are those worrisome thoughts actually true? And second, are those worrisome thoughts helpful to us? If the answer to either of these questions is no, then the worry is not serving us well. The panic we see all around us includes things like canceling concerts, conventions, and public meetings. It has people afraid of schools, daycares, and places of worship. It requires people to hoard hand sanitizers and toilet paper. Some even see these events as apocalyptic, as if the end of the world is just around the corner. I am old enough to remember so many other times that there was hype about a cataclysmic end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenario. Remember the Y2K scare? How about global cooling, which became global warming, which now is just known as climate change? Recently, when President Trump authorized the killing of an Iranian terrorist, one of the trending hashtags in social media became World War III. Does the World Health Organization's designation that the coronavirus is a pandemic mean that this is the end of the world? Well, let's look at the last declared pandemic. It was the H1N1 virus in 2009, otherwise known as the swine flu. In 2009, there were 1.4 billion worldwide cases of the swine flu and 575,000 deaths. And yet, here we are some 11 years later and most people don't even remember the swine flu. The swine flu, although it did kill a number of people, it was not the end of the world. And we can pretty much confidently say that the coronavirus, too, is not the end of the world.
However serious a threat the coronavirus poses, it is important to keep things in perspective. More people die from tuberculosis each day and from air pollution every five hours than have succumbed in two months to the COVID-19 virus. The vast majority, 96% of people who have had the illness have recovered. Children seem largely untouched. We know where the illness came from, and the situation in that country is improving. The vast majority of cases are asymptomatic. You can kill it with antiseptic spray. Science is all over it. Clinical trials are already underway. This is not to minimize what has happened or predict what will happen. It is merely to keep a sense of perspective about coronavirus. There is no point to succumbing to a fear pandemic before the disease pandemic even takes hold. And besides, there have already been a number of silver linings here. The stock market is presenting a number of opportunities to buy cheaper stock. Personal hygiene has gotten much better with hand washing and hand sanitizers. People's hands have never been cleaner. Coughs and sneezes have never been more covered. And most importantly, I have a ready supply of fresh toilet paper. When we come back, we will conclude this week's episode with a modern parable about viruses and sickness. The parable, I think, really gives us something to think about. A modern day parable. You're driving home from work next Monday after a long day. You tune in your radio You hear a blurb about a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly, strangely, of a flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza, but three or four people are dead, and it's kind of interesting, and they are sending some doctors over there to investigate it. You don't think much more about it, but coming home from church on Sunday, you hear another radio spot. Only they say it's not three villagers, it's 30,000 villagers in the back hills of this particular area of India. And it's on TV that night. CNN runs a little blurb. People are heading there from the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta because this disease strain has never been seen before. By Monday morning when you get up, it's the lead story. It's not just in India, it's in Pakistan. Afghanistan, Iran, and before you know it, you're hearing this story everywhere, and they now have coined it as the mystery flu. The president has made some comment that he and his family are praying and hoping that all will go well over there, but everyone is wondering, how are we going to contain it? That's when the president of France makes an astonishing announcement that shocks Europe. He is closing their borders. No flights from India, Pakistan, or any of the countries where this thing has been seen. And that's why that night, you are watching a little bit of CNN before going to bed. 
your jaw hits your chest when a weeping woman is translated into English from a French news program. There's a man lying in a hospital in Paris, dying of the mystery flu. It has made its way to Europe. As best as they can tell, after contracting the disease, you have it for a week before you even know it. Then you have four days of unbelievable symptoms, and then you die. Britain closes its borders, but it's too late. Southampton, Liverpool, Northampton, and it's Tuesday morning when the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and from Europe and Asia have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry, they not, cannot come back to the United States until we find a cure for this thing. Within four days, our nation has been plunged into an unbelievable fear. People are wondering, what if it comes to this country? And preachers on Tuesday are saying that the scourge of God has come. It's Wednesday night, and you are at a church prayer meeting when somebody runs in from the parking lot and yells, Turn on a radio! Turn on a radio! And while everyone in church listens to a little transistor radio with a microphone stuck to it, the announcement is made. Two women are lying in a Long Island hospital, dying from the mystery flu. Within hours, it seems that this disease envelops the country. People are working around the clock trying to find an antidote, but nothing is working. California, Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts. It's as though it's just sweeping in from the borders. Then, all of a sudden, the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure has been found. A vaccine can be made. It's going to take the blood of somebody who hasn't been infected. And so, sure enough, all through the Midwest, through all those channels of emergency broadcasting, everyone is asked to do one simple thing. Go to your downtown hospital or clinic and have your blood analyzed. That's all we ask of you. When you hear the sirens go off in your neighborhood, please make your way quickly, quietly, and safely to those hospitals and clinics. Sure enough, when you and your family get down there late on that Friday night, there is a long line, and they've got nurses and doctors coming out and pricking fingers and taking blood and putting labels on it. Your spouse and your kids are out there too, and they take their blood and say, wait here in the parking lot, and if we call your name, you can be dismissed and go home. You stand around, scared, with your neighbors and friends, wondering what on earth is going on, and wondering, too, if this is the end of the world. Suddenly, a young man comes out, running from the hospital and screaming. He's yelling a name and waving a clipboard. What? He yells it again. And your son tugs on your jacket and says, Daddy, that's my name. Before you know it, they have grabbed your son. Wait a minute, hold on. And they say, it's okay, his blood is clean, his blood is pure. We want to make sure he doesn't have the disease. We think he might be the blood type that we need. Five tense minutes later, 
they come out. The doctors and the nurses are crying and hugging one another. Some are even laughing. It's the first time you've seen anybody laugh in a week. And an old doctor walks up to you and says, Thank you, sir. Your son's blood is perfect. It's clean. It's pure. And we can make the vaccine from it. As the word begins to spread across the parking lot full of folks, people are screaming and praying and laughing and crying. And then the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your wife aside and says, May we see you for a moment? We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor, and we need, we need you to sign a consent form. You begin to sign, and then you see the box with the number of pints of blood to be taken is empty. Uh, how many pints do you need? And that is when the old doctor's smile fades, and he says, We had no idea it would be a little child. We weren't prepared. We need it all. We need all his blood. But, but I don't understand. He's my only son. We're talking about the world here. Please sign. We, we, we need to hurry. We can't give him a transfusion. If he had clean blood, we would. Please, will you please sign? In numb silence, you do. And then they say, Would you like to have a moment with him before we begin? Could you walk back? Could you walk back to that room where your son sits on a table saying, Daddy, Mommy, what's going on? Could you take his hands and say, Son, your mommy and I love you and we would never let anything happen to you that didn't just have to be. Do you understand that? And when that old doctor comes back in and says, I'm sorry, we've got to get started. People all over the world are dying. Could you leave? Could you walk out while he's saying, Dad, Mom, Dad, why, why have you abandoned me? And then next week, when they have the ceremony to honor your son and some folks sleep through it and some folks don't even bother to come because they have better things to do. And some folks come with a pretentious smile and just pretend to care. Would you just jump up and say, excuse me, my son died for you. Don't you care? Does it mean nothing to you? I wonder, is that what God wants to say? My son died for you. Does it mean nothing? Don't you know? How much I care? How often do we really stop to think about the sacrifice God the Father made in sending his only son, Jesus? It's easy to think about Jesus' life and death as a story, but we know it is so much more than that. It is the gospel, the good news, the very reason that we are saved. Thank you for joining us today. Please consider taking a moment to like, rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. You can also connect with us and join the conversation on Facebook. Just search for Positively 365. We would love to hear from you. So until next time, stay positive today and every day, 365 days a year.